Hello everyone and welcome to the next edition of the VTX podcast. Here at the Veterinary Thought Exchange we like to start by asking what are you thinking? And this week we're going to be chatting to the amazing Magda Upton who has joined us all the way from Australia. She is our first Australian guest on the podcast and we're really excited to be chatting about her journey as a veterinary surgeon. We're also joined by the lovely Gareth Arthurs who will be joining us for our clinical segment where we're going to be chatting all things orthopaedic and particularly focusing on cruciate disease in the dog. We're really grateful for Veterinary Instrumentation for sponsoring and collaborating with us on the podcast today. Just to introduce myself, my name is Scott. I am one of the founders of VTX and I'm a specialist in small animal internal medicine. I'm joined as always by my friend in real life, Karen who is helping us, as we say, to keep on track. Hello, Karen. How are you today? Super duper. <laughs> That's a bit of a delayed response. <laughs> Fine. I mean, I've, I'm here feeling vulnerable just after having my COVID vaccine and everything. Oh, gosh. <laughs> For baby. Um, I know. <laughs> I feel good, actually. I know. I know. It's fine. Magda, thanks so much for coming on to the podcast. It really is great of you to to take the time to speak to us I wanted to start I'm going to read from your Instagram profile actually if that's okay I presume you wrote it so I hope that's okay (laughs) so so, um you describe yourself you describe yourself as a small animal uh GP emergency and locum vet a beginner cellist a lifeguard a mama a wife and a nerd yes (laughs) I'm a big nerd yes (laughs) so I want you to tell me which one of those words describes you the best oh (laughs) my goodness I think I'd have to say yeah that I I don't think I can answer that actually I don't think I am any one of those more than any other I guess you know I am a vet that's I guess that's who I am but then all those other things are really important to me as well Mm. and I think doing all those other things helps me to live a balanced life and I, I guess the pressures yeah. um, that our profession has. Yeah, obviously those are well thought out words. For me, what's really interesting about you and one of the things that comes through, and I don't know whether you mean it to come through or not, is the fact that actually you are doing a good job of, first of all, keeping your love for veterinary medicine alive, but also maintaining the elusive uh, work-life balance or whatever we, we want to sort of say so it, it certainly comes through to me you know through your social media that you are still in love with veterinary medicine would you say that's true I am yeah it is very true yeah very true yeah I still love it I love my job and what do you think has allowed you to to still love it um having variety and having flexibility and then also always learning so always um learning something new um, like I've only been doing the emergency thing for about mm, six months now and I just do that every two weeks but I definitely felt a lack of that in my life like I, I felt that I got to the point that I maybe didn't know how to handle a really sick animal that came through the door um, so I just wanted to get that under my belt as well yeah so I just sort of reached out and um, actually reached out to me because um, a friend needed someone to help locum in his emergency center so I said yep sure I'll do it and then it sort of turned into a a long-term thing so yeah I think there's definitely variety and always learning yeah no well I think that's true in in all aspects of like take us back then so you you also said um 
you're a bit of a vintage vet. Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I presume that means you you didn't qualify yesterday. No. So take I, us back to the beginning of your veterinary career. So I graduated in 2001 from Murdoch University. So that's 20 years ago in November this year. Will be 20 years. Wow. Yeah. So I guess I am. I'm, I'm 41 now. I'll be 42. So I guess I am starting to feel that's middle age, isn't it? Yeah, so I guess that's why I started calling myself old, maybe prematurely. <laughs> I don't. I, I think you're being slightly unfair. You certainly don't look old. You certainly don't look old. It's just makeup. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. Makeup and filters. <laughs> but thank you. Yeah, yeah. So I think I I need to wear more makeup. <laughs> so when you when you first graduated, um. What was your kind of idea of how your veterinary career would would be? What was your kind of what did you think it was going to be um, at the very beginning of your career? I had a very interesting start because when I was at university, I went through a lot of different things that I thought I wanted to be. So I thought I wanted to be a horse vet and then quickly changed my mind. And then I thought I wanted to be a zoo vet. Um, so I did an externship at Melbourne Zoo. Um, but then Western Australia is funny because we're actually really remote. Um, and 20 years ago, it it wasn't really much of a chance to do anything like externships or special, well, you could specialise, but really hardly anyone did it and usually had to go to America um, to do it. Like there wasn't, there was just the one specialist centre, which was Murdoch Uni. And most people that graduated just went to either general or mixed practice. Um, and so that's what I ended up doing and actually found out that I really did quite enjoy small animal medicine, which surprised me. Um, and then I regretted not paying more attention at uni to the small animal stuff because I found I really liked it. And then I feel like I've just been sort of playing catch up ever since, just because things are just constantly evolving and learning. One of the things that we, we've spoken about is is the fact that actually I think vets coming out nowadays even almost have a harder time of it because actually there's so much more on offer. There's so much more to consider treatment wise and actually so many more options for the owners and I think sometimes that can actually be put more pressure on the younger vets because they have to keep up with so much stuff you know it can be quite overwhelming yes I agree yeah I think when I when I graduated as well it was Western Australia especially was still very much like your general practice vet did most things um and you there you know there were specialists and you could refer but really that was the exception rather than the rule and most people expected their local vet to kind of do most things um so um and I feel that's really changed like especially now um people are much more open to higher quality care more people have insurance um whereas in those days that just it was very sort of old school I want to say you've said obviously that you have you know you, through variety uh, within your career and, and different decisions you've made that you've been able to keep keep your love for veterinary medicine kind of alive was there ever a point throughout your career where you felt that maybe you you could have or, or were falling out of love with the job in any way um I don't think I ever really fell out of love but I definitely did have um a few jobs where perhaps it wasn't really the right fit um the thing about where I am as well is that there's no compulsory continuing education for Western Australian vets so there are some vets that have are still practicing what they learned 30 years ago and haven't changed. I don't know if that's the same in the rest of the world. 
and I was I did work in a practice for quite a long time where I it was before I had kids so at that point I probably did have the time to maybe do some further study and get some qualifications but I just actually didn't realize that there was more out there um, and I probably stayed longer than I could have and I stayed because I really liked the nurses that I worked with um, and it was a it was a nice work environment but I feel that professionally I went backwards in that time um, and then when I had kids I cut down to part-time work and I almost realized how far behind I'd fallen. So I've sort of been doing a lot of studies since then, um, catching up and wanting to provide the best quality care that I can. But I never wanted to specialize. Like I did, I did think about it, but I, the thing with me is there's no one thing that I love more than anything else about being a vet. So I, I want to do everything, which is, is also not good because you can't be good at everything, but I still try. Well, I don't, I mean, I think that's, I think what I love, uh, and this kind of comes a little bit into one of the things you said to me that you clearly, obviously you've got a passion to continue to learn, but you've also got this passion for trying to pay it forward as far as educating yourself, you know, providing education yourself, you know, through your social media. And I think that it's a lovely balance, I I think, of um, very educational material, but also a lot of nice stuff about you, whether it's you falling asleep at your desk. I love all your posts when you're in the car and you're like, it's two o'clock in the morning. What am I doing with my life? You know, I, I just, but I think, I don't know if you realize, but that all comes, I love that. Thing. I love when you're playing the cello. That's <laughs> so bad. <laughs> oh, it is, it's so bad. And I'm like, oh, do I post this? Yes. Oh God. And then I like, it's like, I hardly ever post it because it's like, oh, it's so squeaky and scratchy. And then my face is always like really derpy practice face. Like I can't have a relaxed, happy face. Uh, anyway, that's just me being self-conscious, but yeah. <laughs> but I think, but I think you have this wonderful, so it's this wonderful array. So I was, I was scrolling through your different stuff and you know, you've got oh, a yeah. post on, I don't know, diabetes and then, the, but then it's about, yeah. you know, it's just a really nice variety. And actually there's a number of vets who GP vets or maybe those in emergency practice who do this really lovely thing where they're kind of they they summarize how what they're doing in their day, kind of reflect on how their day, you know, I'm doing two bitch space, one cat cast street, blah, blah, blah. And I just think it's a really kind of very honest, um uh, nice reflection on sort of day-to-day life. And and I and and then you're falling asleep at your desk, which is quite again representative of or doing your notes at home or whatever else you're doing. And so I think you know, you have achieved, I think, a really nice, honest platform. But coming back to the point, you're you're also passionate about educating and paying it forward in that way. Yes. Yeah, I am. I actually really am. Like, I quite enjoy teaching. Yeah, it's mm. fun. And I do like just, I, I, I post things that help me. Like I'll be doing something in day in my, you know, work and I go, oh, this might be good to share because um, it's quite helpful because sometimes I don't, yeah, things that help me, some people might not know. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, I guess that's where a lot of my content comes from is just things I've come across or things I've learned or that I want to share. Yeah. So your social media has been very successful and people clearly enjoy the content that you create. Why did you want to do that? What, what was the reason for doing that? Well, the way, the way it all started was, um, my clinic, um, Warwick Vet, um, asked me to run their clinic's social media. Um, I think that cause I had my own little page with my kids and I post a lot of photos of my kids and they thought that that would mean that I would be good at doing the work one. Um, so I started doing the work social media, um, and that actually went really well. Um, 
and I didn't really know much about Instagram before then. And yeah, I, I would just post our cases and day-to-day things. And I just found I was getting a lot of interaction. And then I found that I really enjoyed that interaction. Um, and I didn't even know about direct messages until one day I went to the message and there was all these requests. And I was like, what, what is this? <laughs> um, <laughs> um, it got to a point where, um, because it's not, I'm not the owner of the clinic and um, some of the nurses that were happy to be in the photos left and a lot of people that stayed weren't happy to be photographed. So it just ended up being me. And, and I wanted to say more as a from my own personal views, but I felt I couldn't do that from a page of a business that I didn't own. Yeah, so that's how it all started really. So I've, I've had my page for about 18 months now, but I've been on Instagram. I think 2016 was when I started the work page. The whole thing of this creating this just really positive content, I think is really, it's just really nice. And I think you, well, I hope if that's what you're trying to achieve, then I think you achieve it really well. And I really, I, I certainly really enjoy the content that you uh, you put out. So um, so as far as um, your heritage though is from over our way. I was born in Poland. Oh, cool. Yeah, really yeah. cool. Yeah. And so when did you, when did you move over to Australia? When I was three. Okay. And how is your Polish? Apparently I speak it with an Australian accent now. Um, <laughs> and um, and the main person I speak with really is my parents. So I don't speak it every day. Mm-hmm. It's just when I speak to them. And I'll often forget words now. So I'll speak like 95% Polish and then insert an English word that I don't know. Um, but I do actually have, it's actually quite handy because there's a lot of Polish people in Perth and a lot of people will come to see me and I'll mm. I'll consult in Polish um, as much as I can. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it's really handy actually. And they all sort of hear about me through their social media. You know, there's like a Facebook page for Polish mm-hmm. people in Perth and they'll mention me and people mm-hmm. will come to see me. So that's really nice. I love They're more that. comfortable speaking in their, in, they can speak English, but their Polish is better. And yeah. my Polish is okay. So we, yeah, we can get the point across. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, and I love that. Like, I love, I think how I've always said, I wish, God, I wish that I had that skill. Like, I think it's such a gift to be able to speak more than one language. And I think, particularly when you can use it to actually make people feel so much more comfortable, particularly when they're stressed out at the vets, I think that's yeah. a, an amazing thing to be able to do um you know amazing yeah. thing uh, have you been back to Poland um much? we didn't go back for a long time because of the um so we, I came out in 83 and the uh, communism didn't fall till 89 so I went back um I think for one Christmas in 1986 so I was seven and then we didn't go back till 2007 and we went as a family it was before I had kids oh. so it was me my brother and my sister who were born here because I'm the oldest, we all went back with my with my parents and my husband, and we just drove around Poland for three weeks, and that was really good. And we were my mum's seventy oh, now, wow. so we were planning to go back um, with her and my kids, but of course, COVID. So you know, we were going to go in 2022 next year. We were going to go, but I I don't think that's going to happen really. You mentioned obviously coronavirus there, and it's very hard for us to have a conversation, I think, and not talk about it. And I think. I wanted to kind of ask, and and it's if it's if it's just too traumatic to talk about, then please don't. But it feels like you've had quite a lot to contend with from a professional point of view, obviously coronavirus and working as a vet through that. But your clinic also had a number of quite significant disasters. Yeah. Um. I don't know if you if you're okay just to kind of yeah, talk a little I bit can, about that. Yeah, I can talk about that. So my main clinic, um, there was a there's a dentist clinic next 
next door to our clinic and um, they had a fire. So one of his machines malfunctioned and there was a big chemical fire and we were having a lockdown that week. So most people weren't working, but we were, and we share air conditioning ducts. So all of his chemical smoke came into our clinic um, and we were working. We had animals in hospital because there was also bushfires So at the same time. So a lot of nurses had left their animals in the clinic. So we had boarding cats, which we don't normally do, um, patients. I had a dog under anaesthetic and this black smoke is just billowing through our air conducts and we literally just had to evacuate mid-procedure. Um, luckily it was a dental so it wasn't like I had a laparotomy that I had to stitch up but I just literally woke, worked the dog up and recovered him in the car park um, so that was on the 4th of February so that's what over three months ago um, and we're still not back um, the work started there to repair because it has to places to be gutted and rebuilt so um, they've started work and they're saying seven weeks but given it's already been three months I'm saying at least another three months really so we've been working out of um, a rented premises or so renting a room at another GP clinic and then surgical suite at a, a, a second clinic. So we're working across two clinics. So that sounds slightly stressful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it's really, it's been so hard and um, more so on the nurses because we've been down to one phone line and it, it got to a point where they were diverting the phones to the nurse's mobile so they could only answer one call at a time. And they would, when they were on reception, they would literally just be one phone call after another and without a break um, because people just kept ringing. And then the message bank would cut people's messages off. So they would start to leave their phone number, but the message would only record half their phone number. So they couldn't ring people back. Um, yeah. I, I think as, as a vet, it hasn't been too bad, but definitely the, the nurses um, have really had their work cut out for them. Yeah, and, and plus the vets are down to sole yeah. charge. So before we'd always have at least two vets, um, but because I've only got the one room, there's just one vet at a time. Yeah. So, no, it, ha it hasn't been fun Gosh, at all. Yeah. No. Yeah. That's the last thing you need on top of everything else, yeah. So with in the midst of all of this, what do you, we mentioned the cello, but what, what do you do to keep your life, in check and balance do you think my main clinic is part-time work so I work there every Thursday and every Friday and then a shared Saturday roster um and then my emergency shift is every second Saturday and then on top of that I will locum on Mondays Tuesdays and Wednesdays but I try to have breaks so I'm not always locuming and I will say no so then I have time to myself to just sort of recharge um manage just to clean the house to be honest um you know, because the house falls apart when I'm working. Um, that's the main thing, really. Um, you know, family of five and I'm the only one that cleans. So, yeah, so that <laughs> um, I guess um, I'm outside of work. I guess one thing I don't really share a lot is I'm often involved, really involved with the kids sport. And I'm always on a committee of some sort. Like at the moment, we're on an orchestra committee. Um, yeah. And, and the cello has been really I've really enjoyed that, actually. So something for me. Listen, it I think your cello is playing is very good, but well, if it even if it was the worst cello playing in the world, it doesn't matter. Yes, because you know, it's just it it's what you get out of it, right? You know, that's true. That's true. There was a brilliant moment on social media recently where you were talking about. I think your daughter was playing netball. Was it maybe? And I think. Um, oh yeah. The, <laughs> when you were oh, yes. talking about the, so I don't know if you want to just. I love that moment. Just maybe elaborate a little oh. bit. You're that mum. You're that mum. That mum, oh, okay, so I've discovered that I am that kind of parent that runs up and down the court 
yelling um, and people have actually asked me to record it. So I am going to get my husband to film me. Um, I, I just never thought I'd be, I think because I played netball and I know the rules, I'm just like yelling, like, you know, make space, um, run forward, call for the ball. Like I'm just one of those, yeah, one of those parents. I'm very embarrassing. <laughs> but she listens to me as well. So that makes me yell more, you know? Yeah. And I'm not like that. And I would judge other parents that are like that but now I'm like that too now I love that because I think <laughs> first of all I mean I would judge other people for being like that but then oh no hold on I am like that yeah <laughs> yeah <Yep. laughs> parenting is so much of parenting is so much of what you think parenting is about what you think you're going to be like you know I'm only going to feed my kids vegan food yep. they're going to wear um upcycle clothes oh, no. and they're never going to watch television fast forward mcdonald's television <laughs> so, yeah do you know what i mean yeah so i i was also like that with my first child but then by my third child my standards are they've really dropped yeah ex extremely yes yeah <laughs> it's literally my favorite thing so my my oldest child was in just um cloth nappies oh, so i yeah. did cloth nappies I, I didn't use disposables i home cooked all this food he didn't have screen time um yeah my third child i think he's always got an ipad in his hand he does my my third child doesn't even watch children's tv he watches what the 11 year old watches and um have you heard of a game called among oh. us do i need it in my life oh so it's very inappropriate <laughs> it's like oh so it's basically this game that kids play where all these people play this game and one of you is the imposter mm -hmm. And you have to guess who the imposter is. Meanwhile, the imposter goes around killing everyone else. It sounds lovely. So my five-year-old plays this game. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I love that. The t how, how my parenting has changed. Very much so. Yes. Yeah. So I, I do try. Look, I do I do yeah. try and I, I do cook. and But I'm, I really have lowered my standards. I think you have to, really, don't you? Mm -hmm. Like, it's okay yeah, to it's go to McDonald's. It's okay if your kid watches the iPad. Especially with you guys with lockdown, I... Uh, we're lucky that when we had lockdown, it was only for short periods. It wasn't anything like what you guys have, have it over there. Um, and it would have been winter where you were. I just think you have to be kind to yeah. yourself as a parent, honestly. And you, you, I think we're all doing the best we can, honestly. No, I think, well, there, I think that's a take-home message right there. So talking about take-home messages, there's a few questions that I, we love to ask people and we'd love to ask you. So the first one actually is, well, maybe you don't like to hear this sort of thing, but it, you, in, in some way you will inspire people um, even through your social media platform. I, and I suppose my question then is, who inspires you? Yeah, I knew you were going to ask this, and I had a really long think about that. And <laughs> um, and I can't really think of any one person, but I am inspired by people who have found things difficult and then found ways to get through difficult things. Um, and I sort of like to look at how people tackle challenges because I think you, we can really learn from from anyone else that's gone through those kinds of things. So I find that really inspiring. Anyone, anyone that's had a challenge, like a really difficult challenge and gotten through it or anyone that's just done really something really hard and, and hard things don't come easily. And it's not that you're talented, it just comes down to hard work. So it's just figuring out how other people have done those kinds of things. I find that really inspiring. Hmm. No, it's very true. Um, Obviously, we've kind of touched on this. I think you clearly have made an amazing um, job of your your veterinary career in so many ways. If you did have your time again, so 
20 years ago this November would you oh no longer to go to start vet school but um would you make the decision to go to vet school again yes that's all I've ever wanted to do is be a vet ever since I'm one of those people that wanted to be a vet from when they were two so yeah I would absolutely 100 times over and would you change anything um I probably I think I would have liked to have done more study before I had kids and maybe gotten a certificate or um, these things in Australia called membership exams because I, I would still like to do those. But I honestly, like Dr. Brooke, I don't know if you follow her, she's doing her membership, studying for her membership exams yes. and on her Maestro, she just, or I just do not have the time to do that now. So I kind of maybe wish I had done that before I had kids. That That's probably the only thing I would change. Yeah. Yeah, the the kids are a funny thing, isn't it? I think you, um, it does change the whole dynamic of everything, doesn't it? Like, I just think there's not, but there's not enough time in the day. There's not enough time in the day. Yeah. And I want to spend time with them. Yeah, you know? yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. Particularly in your kind of, on this platform where you do have the ability to, to I suppose, give advice sometimes. Is there is there one piece of advice that you would give maybe to younger veterinary professionals that are listening, something that you maybe wish you'd known as you were kind of navigating through your career? Um, I think commun- like communication that I've learned that communication is so important and I don't think you can ever over-communicate with clients. And I think that most of the time where I've had problems with clients is it was a communication issue because I didn't perhaps communicate well enough or set their expectations and what they thought was going to happen wasn't, what was going to happen, like I didn't adequately prepare them. I I think that's a hard one, though, because I I think you can learn a certain degree of communication at university, but a lot of it you just have to try and fail and figure out a way that works as well. So a lot of it you've got to learn on the job, I think, too. But it's it's really, I think I find that to me is the, the biggest game changer is good communication. Massive thank you to Magda for that wonderful chat today. Uh, Moving into our clinical segment of the podcast today, we're really so grateful for the kind sponsorship of Veterinary Instrumentation. They are a global animal health care organisation which has proudly served the industry for over three decades. Now, I can't say this week that the products we're talking about are things that I often use. Karen, do you, after editing the podcast, do you know what a TPLO is? I do not. <laughs> You've absolutely no idea. <laughs> right. So we're talking we're talking this week on the podcast about cruciate disease and uh potentially TPLOs, which I've learned a lot about because that's certainly not something I know a huge amount about. And please head over to the Veterinary Instrumentation website to uh find lots of information about the amazing uh kit they have uh, related to the management of orthopedic disease. Okay, so um, thanks very much, Gareth, for coming on to the podcast. I just think um, it would be nice um, for the listeners if you could just maybe start by introducing yourself um, and just a little bit about your veterinary background, if that's okay. Sure. Thank you, Scott, and thank you for the uh, invitation. Um, Nice to be here. Um, So um, I'm Gareth Arthurs. Uh, I've been qualified for 25 years. Um, I started off in mixed practice in uh, Buckinghamshire, uh, and I, I've worked my way, I guess, through the through the profession or up the ladder or however you want to um, describe it. 
um, in that I did a certificate in radiology in private practice, then I did a certificate in surgery in private practice, then I went to Cambridge and did a residency and got my RCVS uh, diploma. I became a specialist in orthopedics in 2007, so I guess that's now 14 um, years ago. And since then, I've worked predominantly in university practice, um, Liverpool, um, RVC, um, Cambridge and Dublin. Uh, and spent some time uh, working in private practice. Um, and recently, I've uh, just um, set up um, my own uh, orthopedic referral service in Northamptonshire, um, Arthur's Orthopedics. But I also hold a uh, part-time position as Professor of Orthopedic Surgery at the University of Nottingham, uh, which is a 10% position and essentially um, enables them to use me or vice versa, whichever way you want to think of it, in that I go and deliver education for the um, uh, undergraduates and their postgraduate um, CPD um, activities. You know, I was just, I was, I was doing a bit of background, uh, sort of reading about you. And, and I think that's, um, it's quite a kind of, you know, as far as kind of the different institutions you've worked at, that's, I noticed that you've missed off the Scottish ones, though. I'm not sure how I feel about that. But you've, <laughs> you've well, <laughs> I can put I can put your mind at ease. Uh -huh. uh, most most of the places that I've worked over the last ten years have actually been as a medium term locum. So people have called me up and said, "Can you come and do a few weeks here?" And inevitably, those few weeks have ended up being two or three years. So in many ways, I think we're probably as far away. Um, uh, from a special, <laughs> from a specialism point of view, we're about as far away as you get from each other. Um, so I'm. <laughs> oh, we can discuss immune-mediated arthritis or something, maybe. You know, that's or... really, that's, that's funny actually because we always have a bit of a battle about that. So, who manages those conditions? I don't know. Some some orthopedic specialists really want to, others don't, and vice versa. That's really that's. We can discuss it. We we can you know why not? <laughs> we, we have a debate. <laughs> I mean, I'm easy either way, to be honest. But yeah, no, um, that's very true. That's a good point of crossover. So what we're going to talk about today is very much not something that I know anything about. I think you know, the last time I treated a dog with cruciate disease was uh, when I first graduated and I worked in the PDSA. And actually, so we did, we did, you know, manage these patients. I think the reason for me that this is, uh, you know, obviously a good topic is because clearly cruciate disease in dogs is still, a, correct me if I'm wrong, still a very common uh, reason for dogs to be um, presenting um, with lameness uh, I, it, that's that's accurate right for sure for sure yeah. yeah the most probably the most common cause of hind limb lameness in the dog I think you can you can right. say yeah um, and so I think really a good reason then for us to kind of chat through I think the treatment options that are available for cruciate disease particularly and I think we, we've we've touched on this quite a number of times with different conversations that I've had I think as time moves on there are more and more options that are available to dogs for the management of a variety of different conditions and I think for I feel sorry for new graduates sometimes because when they're going into general practice because actually they've got a big job to keep up to date with all the things that are now available and I think sometimes also the decision making about how much do, is it okay for us to do and then really at what stage should we we'd be thinking about kind of referring these patients on maybe for more specialist sort of treatment. Maybe to start with then, as far as cruciate disease generally, 
from a diagnostic point of view, from a general practitioner's point of view, has anything changed from that perspective or do we still approach these cases in a similar way? I, th I think from a diagnosis point of view, very little has probably changed. Um, the diagnosis is based on history, you know, recent hind limb lameness, uh, acute, subacute or, or chronic, um, usually a middle-aged dog. So if the dog is less than one or more than 10, you would be thinking unlikely cruciate disease, whereas the, not impossible, but unlikely. Um, whereas, you know, a sudden onset hind limb lameness in a dog between one and 10 years of age, which is a lot of dogs, um, is highly likely to be cruciate disease. And without wanting to be too flippant, um, it is almost cruciate disease until proven otherwise. Um, you know, of course, I don't quite mean that. You, you want to have your list of differentials and, and think about things sensibly, but cruciate disease has to be high up there. Um, any breed of dog, really, from um, a, a little Jack Russell or a Yorkshire Terrier all the way up to a Great Dane or um, uh, some sort of Mastiff. Although the common breeds uh, would be Labrador, Rottweiler, Collie, Spaniel, etc. Uh, and then the main diagnosis is really physical examination uh, and um, localizing uh, muscle wastage, um, stifle effusion, and uh, the main, the diagnostic physical tests are cranial draw and cranial tibial thrust. So demonstrating craniocaudal instability of the stifle. We can have a discussion about whether it's femur relative to tibia or tibia relative to femur, but that's getting a bit complicated for here probably. Um, and uh, stifle effusion, medial buttress. Uh, occasionally dogs will give you some pain on hip extension, uh, probably because it's referred from the stifle, um, but it's localizing to, to the localizations to the stifle. Um, and the vast majority of dogs, you can, you can make your diagnosis of cruciate disease from your physical exam. Um, it's not necessary in most dogs to sedate them or radiograph them. And I think that's probably, you know, for, for uh, vets in their early years, that's something to understand or appreciate. It's, it's a common myth, if you like, that you, you make a diagnosis of cruciate disease from the radiographs. You don't, you see secondary changes of cruciate disease from the radiograph and you can use the radiograph to plan your surgery, but the, the diagnosis is based on palpation of the stifle thinking about the dogs that come in and i'm seeing this secondhand through the orthopedic service they're coming in for management of the cruciate disease with some surgical procedure but but they they typically are radiographed before surgery is that right yes absolutely but that's not to do with diagnosis well it it is to um make your differential list more accurate and to plan the surgery but, it, but you make the diagnosis by physical palpation of instability in the stifle. Or let's flip that on its head. If you radiograph a dog with um, uh, cruciate disease, you will typically find effusion of the joint, some degree of degenerative joint disease, and um, uh, medial buttress. And if you say, well, what are your differentials for those findings? Well, they would be um, cruciate disease, uh, patella luxation, um, IMPA, septic arthritis, maybe neoplasia. Now, those latter ones are all very unlikely, um, but the former ones, 
for sure, cruciate disease is, is the most likely, but you can't make the definitive diagnosis from the radiograph. Yeah, yeah. You see what I mean? So you're, you're seeing changes that are consistent with cruciate disease rather than changes that are diagnostic of cruciate disease. And for the very ignorant amongst us, me, what's medial buttress? Medial buttress is, what do you mean by that? <laughs> is virus thickening on the medial aspect of the stifle joint. So the for some reason, you get this localised thickening medial to the, to the stifle joint. And I guess we don't really know why that is. We suppose it's it's some sort of response to the instability caused by the cruciate deficient instability, but but we don't know. So you can feel medial buttress and you can see it on a cordocranial radiograph of the stifle where you see this medial soft tissue, uh, sorry, soft tissue medial to the to the stifle in the region of the medial collateral ligament. Okay. So in so I mean a, re a really useful point there already I suppose is the fact that we're making this diagnosis and we don't necessarily have to be doing anything other than a good physical examination and obviously based on our you know history etc. So in that kind of moment of first presentation where where these patients are being seen for the first time, um, is there a sort of um, initial treatment step that people can institute or are these patients immediately moving forward to having some sort of procedure to solve this problem? I guess like many things in life, it all comes down to owner expectation and uh, ability to pay, attitude to surgery and expectation of outcome and ability to travel. The, short, the shortest answer to the question is I think a dog with, a dog with confirmed cruciate rupture is, I think most specialist surgeons would recommend without much hesitation surgery and the vast majority of those myself included would recommend tplo tibial plateau leveling osteotomy surgery so if certainly if, if my own dog was to rupture its cruciate ligament i would be doing a tplo as soon as possible it's not to say it's an emergency but as soon as possible i think anything in between that so there's but there's multiple factors as to whether whether a dog is going to get to have tibial surgery or whether uh, it's even going to have surgery, you know. So, uh, of course, if you have a dog that is sick for various reasons, maybe give me a good medical condition. I don't know. It's severely anemic or um, I don't know. You know, it's got some sort of shunt or something, you, you know, then um, then it may not. It, yeah. The cruciate disease may may not be its biggest problem or the risk of surgery is is too high to to, to, to proceed, but that would be fairly rare, or I, I wouldn't see those cases. Maybe they've already been weeded out because I, I only see referral cases. So I, I you know, there's a lot of dogs I, I wouldn't, that wouldn't get that far to, as, as to see me. Um, but otherwise, um, and of course there's other reasons. So if you're working in a charity clinic, you're working for the PDSA or the RSPCA, you know, referral for those dogs isn't, isn't an option. And I, I, I've worked, as I said at the beginning, I've worked in a number of different places, including in primary first opinion practice. So I'm not in an ivory tower where I think every dog, you know, has to have a, um, a TPLO, a hip replacement and um, uh, whatever other, you know, super duper treatments there are out there. It's just not realistic and possible. Um, so, yes, uh, to uh, come back to your original question, you can manage a dog with cruciate disease conservatively. 
but one would expect for the lameness to just grumble on. And there um, is a, a, a certainly one study that has shown that you have a higher chance of developing a meniscal tear, the more complete your cruciate rupture is, and the longer your cruciate rupture has been present for. Um, and any human who's had a meniscal tear, which is would be a more um, uh, sporting injury, skiing, um, horse riding, falling off something, will tell you a meniscal tear is, is painful and uncomfortable. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, the reason I say this is because uh, chronic management, uh, sorry, conservative management of cruciate disease, um, I think is practiced. Um, and there is this sort of um, uh, incorrect urban myth that smaller dogs do better with cruciate management, so with conservative management than bigger dogs, which I think is is not true at all. And in fact, hopefully we've got a review article coming up in JSAP soon, looking specifically at the question of cruciate disease in small breed dogs. If I'm rambling, do 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 uh, point me in a in a more helpful um, direction. No, 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 I was actually going to say I think that's a one of the next things I was going to say, and this is very much based again on my experience um, in uh, charity practice, and we're talking over ten years ago now, so uh, a long time ago. Um, <laughs> the th that was very much you know how we practiced the management of cruciate disease in that situation. And so that's a really interesting that, that potentially that, you know, myth busting, those kind of things is really important. Just to clarify that when you're talking about, so let's say for whatever reason, and you've talked about financial, geographic, owner expectations, you know, does, it, does an owner even want a, a patient to have surgery? full stop and some some owners literally just don't want that for their dog you know absolutely yeah um what would be the best in your view the best conservative management strategy for a patient then uh the best conservative management strategy so i guess this is opinion now rather than evidence based but it would be restricting the dog's exercise to a level that the dog could cope with uh, which probably means minimizing uh, vigorous activities like running around, jumping, chasing balls, frisbees, that sort of thing. Uh, so a fairly sedate um, activity and possibly using a non-steroidal um, as required uh, uh, to, to help the dog's uh, discomfort. Uh, probably a maintenance non-steroidal for the next first two to six weeks after diagnosis and then as necessary um, after that. Um, you can try physiotherapy, you can try hydrotherapy. Uh, I guess I'm a little bit, um, I'm not sure if old old school is a word, but if you've got an unstable stifle, uh, I struggle to see how physiotherapy and hydrotherapy is going to fix the unstable stifle. Uh, I guess you, you can argue it will help the dog weight bear, but again, this is very non-evidence based, right? Uh, I'm speculating a little bit, um, uh, but, 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 but this is the sort of thing that you would, you would recommend. And if, if patients, so if, if, and this is the way I can see this playing out in some situations, owners go for a conservative strategy. They realize six to eight weeks down the line that their dog is still lame. And I presume that is often the situation that they are in. And then they decide at a later stage because of the persistent lameness to go down the road of doing something more definitive. Are they ruining their chance of success 
by prolonging the time to a surgical intervention? Um, probably not much is, is, the, is the short answer. Um, they will increase the chance of a meniscal injury in that waiting time. Um, and technically, dogs with a meniscal injury should do worse than dogs without a meniscal injury. But in reality, that doesn't translate, I think, to any sort of clinical outcome we would recognize. So I guess that, yes, if a client wants to try and manage the dog conservatively first and see how the dog gets on, that's fine. Um, uh, they probably don't damage the dog, so to speak, much, but it, they should not be under the impression that the dog is likely to do well with conservative management. The dog will cope with conservative management. Fine, but not, yeah, yeah, no, I see. You. And I, I think it comes yeah. down, you know, it's a really interesting discussion about kind of expectation. And I think that's regardless of what we're talking about, it doesn't, doesn't matter, literally doesn't matter. Cl expectation is the kind of, is, is one of the Absolutely. biggest things that we have to manage. Absolutely. And I think, I don't know if you will. I've certainly found expectation seems to have shifted with, with coronavirus. I don't know. I've certainly found that client expectation is not quite what it used to be. And so I'm finding myself managing expectation, I think, even more. Yeah. yeah. Um, because you, I think I can see now them turning around after six weeks going, uh, I think you said the dog would be better after six weeks of just resting it. And yeah. you're like, mm, I don't <laughs> think I said that. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. You can just, you can just see that. So yeah. what if, what the biggest kind of seal of approval for potentially recommendation, recommending a procedure if my own dog, which is, which I, which I think is good, you know, so if my own yeah. dog ruptured his cruciate, I yeah. would probably do this procedure. Which exactly. From an orthopedic specialist, I think is pretty robust. Yes. Um, what I would say though, I mean, again, correct me if I'm wrong, there are other there are other surgical procedures though. Um, Absolutely, yeah. So yeah. Yeah. So the, what about those? There's a whole host of um, orthopedic procedures out there for cruciate disease, um, and there's there's literally at least thirty, if not a hundred. So a massive thank you again to Magda for joining us today and also to uh, Gareth for the first part of our orthopedic chat. Please do join us next week for the second part of that cruciate disease chat. Big thank you again to Veterinary Instrumentation for all of their support. And I want to thank you as always for listening and supporting and being amazing generally uh, in your um, support of the podcast. It really is truly appreciated. To learn more about VTX and what we do, please head over to our very bright and shiny, amazing new website, actually. Do check it out, which is www.vtx-cpd.com. And on that note, I will see you next week. <laughs>